Hi, this is Hugh Syme, and you're listening to the legendary Sonic Perspective. Welcome to another Sonic Perspectives interview. I'm your host, Rodrigo Altaf, and today I have the honor of talking to the creator of some of the most iconic album covers of prog and metal, Mr. Hugh Sign. Hugh, thank you for joining us tonight. It's my pleasure, man, really. There's a lot of ground to cover, but let's start at the beginning. Uh, tell us about your musical upbringing and also how you got started uh, as a graphic designer and as a musician. Well, uh, music was just part of my family. My aunt was a concert pianist. My father played violin and my mother forced me to practice and I, I respect her and, and, and I'm forever grateful for her her uh, pushing me even though at the time I thought she was wicked for doing so I, I get it now and you know and playing music was a, a joy for me and you know and we all discovered the Beatles and everybody that, that sort of shaped our futures as far as you know rock and pop music is concerned and uh, just around the time that my uh family was living in Canada. My father, who was with the pulp and paper industry, um, moved the family to England. So I was on the other side of the British invasion. And shortly after, I, uh, my father bought me a set of drums. And so I got heavily into sort of researching and, and discovering music. Um, and then along came the piano players who made piano and keyboard players who made you know, uh, keyboards cool, like Emerson and, and Wakeman and even, even the Beatles producer made piano cool and Elton John and so on. So, you know, I, 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 followed, I followed my instincts, just, you know, was never thinking in terms of being in a band, but um, um, went through fine arts at university. And when I left, I did a, a recording session, which happened to be produced by Ian Thomas and Ian Thomas was on the same label as Rush, and he asked me to join his band. I thought he was nuts for doing so, but I, I did so, and I ended, I recorded seven albums with him, and and was asked to do the album covers for Rush at the very very beginning. So. Right, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's talk about Ian Thomas' band for a second, because uh, you collaborated with him for seven years. Do you think this could have lasted a, yes. a little bit longer, or it lasted what it had to last? Um, it was. It was a great collaboration. I mean, I enjoyed being, you know, um, in his band. It taught me a great deal about performance, singing, and just working with other band members. And these guys were great players and great singers. Um, I, uh, you know, we took a break around the early part of the 80s, and we treated it as a break. But at that point, I'd already done three or four Rush covers and Max Webster and I had done a couple of covers for the band that I was in, Ian Thomas's band. Mm-hmm. And then Bob Esmond came back from having done The Wall and he invited me to do a cover for a local Toronto band called The Kings and sent me down to L.A. to deliver the album. That began my my guarded love affair with, with Los Angeles. And, mm-hmm. and very shortly thereafter, I was invited to stay down there. My six weeks, which was supposed to be just painting for Quiet Riot and, and Whitesnake at the time. 
that six weeks turned into 16 years. So oh, wow. <laughs> it was the right time. Again, again, dumb luck, you know, just dumb luck and hard work, you know. Right, right. But as far as Ian's concerned, you know, um, brilliant singer, brilliant songwriter. And, and yes, I suppose if we'd all kind of reconnected again, we could have continued on. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, he did start going into a different direction, formed another band called the Boomers, also a brilliant band and great players. And uh, we, you know, quietly went our separate ways, which was fine. I continued to, continued to do album covers for the Boomers. Okay. Um, so we stayed, we stayed in touch. Right. And I know you got invited to work with Rush on Caress of Steel. Uh, tell us how that invitation came about and what was the process to create that cover in particular? The process was uh, pencil, mm. uh, graphite. I was very enamored at that time and still am. I really respect M.C. Escher the lithographer and draftsman. Um, And I had never seen a pencil drawing on an album cover, so I thought this was a good time to stretch, you know, to to, uh, exercise that that particular look. Um, Ray Daniels, who was the the brilliant manager for the band Rush and happened to be the head of the label and management for Ian Thomas Band, invited me into his office to say that Rush had noticed some covers I'd been doing for Max Webster, also another amazing band with yeah. Kim Mitchell on guitar. Yeah. Um, I had done some covers for them and my band, and Rush invited me. And I look back with you know some some perspective now that I was young and and presumptuous to think that because this band wasn't Genesis or Supertramp, you know. Yeah. I would give them a shot, you know, and 44 years later, I'm still their art director. So um, <laughs> I'm glad I did. You know, I'm yeah. really glad. And and they were a, a wonderful band. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll get into that, but they were just the right band. We were the right fit, that's for sure. Right, for sure, yeah. One particular favor of mine when it comes to Rush is the Grace Under Pressure cover. Uh, there's the the airplane wing at the top. Was that intended to represent the KAL Flight 007 or...? I noticed that I noticed that in your earlier sort of question to me. Hmm. Um, are you sure the, the wing you're referring to isn't on the glider cover for Ian Thomas? Because the Grace Under Pressure cover hmm. um, doesn't feature a, a wing. So I'm thinking, I'm thinking maybe what you're thinking about is the glider cover um, from the Ian Thomas band. Oh, maybe. And yeah. no, it wasn't. Oh. It wasn't. It wasn't to represent that um, fateful flight. No, it was. It was just the fact that. I, at the time, I felt the Ian Thomas band really needed to um, consider a different name because we had been taken on by Chrysalis and Atlantic in the U.S. You know, it was a real big deal for a Canadian artist to get the traction they need, you know, outside of Canada. Canada represented 88% of the North American um, market. The U.S. was the most sought after area. So, we would go out and, you know, we would open up for the Beach Boys or Robert Palmer or Roxy Music, um, right. Billy Joel. It was a good ride, but we would also come back to the humbling real- realization that we had to survive. So we'd come back and play the same clubs that Rush did when they were coming up back in Toronto. Um, so that was another reason we all probably decided to take that break we referred to earlier. But I'd always felt that Ian Thomas's band should have been called Steely Dan or <laughs> or Split Ends. You know, all the names that were coming out at the time, the baby Split Ends, Steely Dan. 
Right. You know, I, I, that's why we, we sort of experimented with the glider concept. Oh, right, yeah. No, when I mean the wing, there's, there's a detail there that looks like a broken wing of a plane on the Grace Under Pressure cover, but, ah. you know, point taken, yeah. It's interesting. Um, yeah. yeah. A lot of think of those as rusting razor blades. And then I was, ironically, I was accused, you know, erroneously by some some know-it-all um, art critic out in L.A. You know, in the early 80s, I saw a, a Los Angeles Times uh, review of that painting. And I was great. I was grateful for the the you know the, the acknowledgement but the the fellow who did the review i forget his name but immediately presumed that because of the content of the painting and the fact that there were three kind of blades coming at you and i didn't think of them as razor blades i just thought of them as you know texture and elements you know not specific but he accused me of being heavily into cocaine to have produced a painting like that so i was always <laughs> amused by him. I was always amused by his presumption. Right. Well, it's a, it's a trippy cover, but I wouldn't go as far as saying that uh, you're under no, the influence yes, of cocaine when you do that. No, for sure not. No. no. Glad to hear it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, about the moving pictures cover, uh, was it difficult to get a permit to photograph at the steps of the Parliament building in Toronto? or? Surprisingly not. I saw the, the building, I thought, well, three arches, three band members, and, mm-hmm. you know, every. Every division between the arches was three pillars. You know, we we early on in the band's career, we 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 definitely used the 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 number three as as a graphic device. Yeah. Um, throughout their whole career, and so when I saw the building, I thought, oh, this is perfect. So I went I went and checked with uh, City Hall and and with the Queens Park people. That's actually at Queens Park that building. Yeah. And they were very receptive and very supportive of the arts and gave us the entire Sunday to work. Um, so it was great. I live here in Toronto, and uh, in my morning commute, I go by Queen's Park, the station. Every time I hear it, this yeah. is Queen's Park Station. You know, I think, you know, it's here. Here's what that cover is made. So it left a mark on me for sure. <laughs> well, you know, the other, and I have to be candid and say that, um, you know, one of my inspirations to get into the the very free and indulgent world of, of art in the music industry. I mean, I could have easily gone on and been sort of an illustrator in the commercial art realm. And I do more of that now because what we once knew as the the burgeoning music business, we're all feeding off the carcass of that now because um, it's just not the same. Ever since Napster and iTunes and so on, it's a very different industry. But um, yeah, having, you know, having the latitude that the music business and the record cover um, frame of reference afforded, you know, designers like Storm Thorgerson and Hypnosis and so on, who are very influential in terms of my saying, yeah, that's what I want to do for a living. You know, um, I realized that when, when Pink Floyd did the, uh, the animals cover with the, the power station in London, I thought, well, there's a, a landmark. So, it, it wasn't lost on me that Queen's Park would also be a maybe a, a potentially legendary landmark for Rush. Right, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And how much of the process uh, is you creating the cover and how much is the artist's process? I mean, like if there's a disagreement between Getty, Alex, and Neil, for example, and, and you, how is that solved? How was that solved when you did those covers? Well, early on, the band 
I think the band was just too busy to kind of too busy and maybe even a little bit intimidated to, to presume that they should be involved in the art. I don't think they really understood the process later on in our career. Neil and I clicked beautifully and we, we developed a great sense of collaboration where I would review the lyrics, review the theme or the arc of, of the album's theme. And, you know, Neil was never one, you know, one of the dreaded things that art directors in this industry um, encounter is a band that says, you know what, we've got a great idea for our next album cover. And I'm thinking they never, they never went there. You know, they never suggested anything to me. So the freedom they afforded me was, was a gift. And I I was forever grateful for that. Um, When I heard the title moving pictures, for example, I thought, yeah, we got to have guys moving pictures, you know. I mean, that was the beginning of our our glib and you know somewhat uh, banal sense of humor, but it also permeated through their whole career. I mean, they were self-effacing, the Three Stooges. You know, I, mean, I don't have to say more. Yeah. You know, these guys, these guys, as 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 serious as they were as musicians and as as precise and and, and dedicated as they were, they also they understood levity and self self. Mm-hmm. the concept of being self-effacing. So, um, yeah, that was, that was another piece of luxury that I had was that I could be, I could be whimsical without being shot down because it wasn't serioso enough. You know? mm-hmm. I see. And uh, nowadays, how is the process to come up with new ideas? I mean, how quickly do you settle on an idea? And uh, does that depend on the artist or... What's your process like? I just realized that part of your last question was, how do we settle differences? Yeah. In the case of Ruck, there were never any. The only one instances where, where we we didn't even come to blows. We just, you know, I, when I described the original idea for Power Windows, I said, we're going to have a lone character in a room by himself, controlling the world with his his uh, remote control from, a t- from an old TV, like a, yeah. like a, like a vintage TV. Um, channel changer and they said that's great I said we could probably feature the Marshall McLuhan of, of you know, the media the medium is the message that was his famous kind of acknowledgement to pop culture that you know the TV was in fact our kind of um, window to the world everybody's living room re- relied on TV nowadays of course it's 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 smartphones and iPhones and so on yeah but at the time, I thought, well, maybe maybe we'll feature some TVs, maybe some old deco TVs. But when I finished the painting, I liked the lone, empty room. And I thought it was finished. And Getty came up to me and said, you know what, that TV thing, I really like that. I said, yeah, but it's better the way it is. And he said, no, I disagree. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. so when he said that, I thought, all right, well, let's before we go there, I realize that I have to re-gesso my canvas and I have to introduce those paintings. Those, those televisions into my painting. Are you sure you want to do this? He said, yes. And to this day, I credit him with the wisdom of having enforced that feature to the cover because I think it really helps the cover right, be yeah. what, what, it, what it is, you know? Mm-hmm. And it was used like the, the TV motif. It was used on the stage a lot. It was used up to the Clockwork Angels, I think, tour where we had this massive yeah. like vintage TV in the backdrop and so on, right? Yeah. 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 You never know. You never know going in just what you're, what you're developing. When I, when I created the Starman for twenty one twelve, I you know I didn't have a clue that would end up being their brand. They, yeah. They, 
you know, you, you do these things as part of your creative process, but you don't necessarily contrive that it's going to be the next Coca-Cola logo or Playboy Bunny, you know. And then yeah. in that case, it was it was their their logo. Yeah. No, I compared the Starman to the, the tongue, the lips and the tongue of Rolling Stones. You know, that's how iconic it was for Rush fans. Of, of yeah. Course. yeah, great. Well, that's a compliment. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> no worries. And uh, have you ever come to reject any project due to differences with the artist or the band? Or Almost. Um, there was one band <clears throat> that came to me with a concept. Their, the band was called Hurricane. And their title was Slave to the Thrill. And I thought, well, that's an interesting title. So what do you have in mind? And they told me, <clears throat> they, they sort of expressed some desire to put a woman in some kind of, you know, bondage, bear trap kind of device. And I thought, that's pretty sexist. And I thought, no, that's not for me. Even though I had done White Snakes, um, I beg your pardon, I'd done um, the Scorpions skin deep with all the Scorpions and the woman. Mm-hmm. And I had done Hooked by Great White, and I'd also done a, a, a moderately naughty cover for Warrant called Cherry Pie. Those were yeah. the only kind of, you know, lightly sexist things that I'd ever done. But this one was, I felt challenged by by Hurricane. I thought, well, we'll make it at least over the top in the school of of Ridley Scott and and the design that went into the the movie Blade Runner. I thought, well, let's let's make this a serious statement. If we're going to do it, let's not be just gratuitously sexist. Let's make it sculpture and make it fu- make it fun and make it dramatic. And and I, that's that's why I did the cover. I don't feature it in my book mm-hmm. a lot because it is a little controversial, but yeah, that's the one I almost passed on. Right, right. And uh, do you prefer to work on album covers and other artworks, or do you prefer creating images for uh, the commercial world as you do right now? Oh, well, I do it now because it's part of what, you know, like I said earlier, we're feeding off the carcass of what was once the music business. So, you know, with three daughters in university and with this thing we call survival, you know, we have to be nimble enough to kind of adapt. And I've been fortunate even in that regard because I work with some pretty hip companies like Samuel Adams Beer and a lot of pharmaceutical art directors are not just taking photographs of pills anymore. They're doing much more metaphorical and um, interesting uh, images. So when I do delve into the commercial, it's, it's usually people that call upon me. Oddly enough, and, and again, gratefully, I see a lot of art directors who come to me from the commercial realm saying, I'm a huge Rush fan, or I've, I've, looked, I've been looking forward to working with you. Wow, that's pretty um, cool. So there's a nice, you know, there, it, 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 there's a cross-pollination of, of, of respect for, for imagery, you know, and, and these people are, you know, just because you're working as an art director in an ad agency doesn't mean you don't, don't love pop music, pop culture and, and rock music. So right. in that respect, it's, it's been a nice marriage. Um, do I prefer commercial? Probably not. You know, the, the freedom I'm afforded by my continuing relationship with two major clients that still love the smell of paper and, the feel, you know, the smell of ink and the feel of paper. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be that would be Dream Theater and Rush. They still do pretty, pretty elaborate and pretty involved packaging, which which we all enjoy doing. So yeah. Um, sure. Well, while that may not be the mainstay of my career, it's still something I welcome from time to time. I see. The freedom, the freedom is the real 
seductive part of doing record covers because it is, you know, they give you a title and then I I tell them I'll see I'll see you in six weeks, you know, <laughs> and then I get to I get to go and and work whatever and do what I need to do. Right, and sometimes you do the covers like already knowing the lyrics and some of the music at least, and sometimes it's just the album title, right? That is correct. Yeah, in some instances the band isn't finished recording. A lot of times, uh, again, Rush is a good example. Neil might have lyrics prepared. There may be no melody for the lyrics because Getty has yet to, Getty and Alex have yet to kind of, you know, structure the song. But Neil yeah. already knows what his his lyric might be, so he'll share those with me early in the game. And they're still rehearsing. They're still getting ready to go in and record. But if I get a title like Signals or Counterparts or, or Moving Pictures or Permanent Waves, all of which, again, spoiled me rotten because Neil was a real wordsmith. It is. In fact, to this day, he's an author and a wordsmith. And for him to come to me with these great titles as a starting point for any graphic designer, it was a, it was a gift. You know, we had, we had a lot of fun with titles from that particular lyricist. Mm -hmm. I like how you speak of Rush in the present. Uh, it, it saddens me that they're oh, like done, at least semi-officially done, but I like how you refer to them in the present. Man, I wish there was some more gas in that tank, but apparently there isn't, right? Well, the gas, I think the gas predominantly is Getty and Alex. I, I think, you know, Neil being a father and being committed to his family, you know, and I think Publicly, we all know that Alex has a bit of arthritis and you know, has some tendonitis. You know, they wanted to go out on top, and rightly so. Um, I think Getty and Alex will probably continue doing something. I, I have a hard time believing they would try to do a, uh, you know, Led Zeppelin with somebody else playing drums. You know, it just wouldn't be right. Yeah. But I speak of them in the present because, well, I thought they had retired, and that was a nice 42-year run. You know, what's next? Well, the answer to that question is that they started doing 40th anniversary box sets, which mm -hmm. celebrate 2112 and and a farewell to kings and, and hemispheres. The next one out of the gate will be permanent waves. But those packages, you know, are more indulgent, more extravagant, more elaborate than anything I ever did for a studio album. So, for me as a designer and an art director and an illustrator, it's the gift that keeps on giving. This band. Much like the Beatles, I mean, two of the Beatles are gone. You know, they're just not with us anymore. Yeah. But we never stop thinking about the Beatles as anything but a living entity. You know, so I speak of Rush in the presence because in the present because they are. You know, they they are in the present. They for any Rush fan, they will always be with us. You know. Yeah. No, same here. Same here. Uh, how do you personally deal with living in the limelight? Has it been a, a positive experience for you? I mean, do you have any crazy Rush fan experiences to share or people chasing you down the street? or? No, no. Well, first of all, I, 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 I've, I've been pretty private all my life um, yeah. and not by design. You know, I've just been busy, you know, and, and what I do is on stage. You know, what I do is in the privacy of my studios. Um, apart from being recognizable as a name, and I didn't realize early in my kind of youthful stupidity that by doing an album cover for, you know, an Aerosmith that sells 16 million records, that maybe my name might get noticed. You know, I didn't really think about that until later in my career. I thought, well, you know what, there's something to be said for publishing that many 
units of my artwork and having that much free um, spin, that much free promotion, you know. So I later became a little bit more savvy to the fact that what I do reached a lot of people and that people might know my name, but they don't know me. And limelight, in the case of Rush, limelight would mean that, yes, Getty would have to dodge and Alex might have to dodge and Neil may have to dodge the the well-meaning autograph seekers, but I never, I never had any of that. And I'm, I'm glad of it because <laughs> I, uh-huh. I, I didn't need it and I don't need it. So, Right. Sure. And you're one of the few people who played on a Rush album. Uh, aside from you, I think only the first drummer, right? John Rutsey and uh, Ben Mink. How did they ask you to do that? Well, before internet, email, were, you know, most of my relationships with uh, Mike Portnoy and, and John Petrucci have been fairly remote. It's a lot, a lot of telephone calls and a lot of um, emails. Even Neil and I ended up kind of seeing each other less and less. It was more through faxing. In the early days, he would fax me his lyrics, his beautifully handwritten lyrics, which were uh, everybody knows about. Um, yeah. And I got copies of those. And, um, so it became more and more of a faceless experience. In the, in the initial days, I was flown to meet Tesla or meet Megadeth or meet Iron Maiden in London. I always had to go and meet the bands, you know. Um, one of my favorite trips, of course, was to meet... Jimmy Page when when David Coverdale and Jimmy did their ill-fated ill-fated uh, merge project but um I was pleased of course to to go and, and meet oh, wow. the Co- legendary and one, wonderfully humble Jimmy you know that was Coverdale Page yeah, Coverdale, right yeah the the days of of going to you know Le Studio in the in the north of of Montreal and hanging with the band having dinner with the band even jamming with the band which was a real treat You know, those days are, are gone, you know. But when I would go up to Montreal and stay with them for a week or so, you know, it was Terry, really. Terry Brown, who said, you know, you should, you know, should play something on this. And, and the first um, time I did that was very early on in, in their career. And I, I did go to the studio to talk album cover. And that's when I did the opening for 2112 on Synthesizer. And then Getty wanted me to play some some uh, keyboards on his beautiful uh, and intimate, you know, sort of rarely intimate sort of um, and exposed track called Tears. So I think it really was more Terry saying, we should have you do this. And then the band saying, sure, why not? You know, um, but I, I've always been grateful for Terry's wisdom. <laughs> uh, you know? Right. So that was sort of like a serendipity sort of thing. You just were there and then you played because the last collaboration was on Witch Hunt and I wonder why it never happened again. Well, um, in the case of Witch Hunt, that was around the same, it was at the same studio I did Different Strings, which was Moran Heights, which is north of Montreal, beautiful place where everybody from the DGs to the police, everybody recorded there. It's a fantastic facility. Um, um, It wasn't long after that that First of all, I went to L.A., which put me at arm's length with the band, and and that's when the digital era began, and email and and different modes of, of communication became available to us. Um, having to fly and be face-to-face with your clients or your friends or your musician or clients was less and less necessary. Um, so that probably answers your question. Why, why was the last time? was the last time I was in the studio with those guys that's that's the first 
fair answer. Uh, and the other answer would be that Getty was slowly kind of um, getting his feet wet in the shallow end of this thing called keyboards. And he slowly kind of um, delved into that area. You know, he, I know he always was intrigued with piano. He would come to my place and I would play pieces for him. And he was very complimentary and and even went so far to say, you know, I hate you. <laughs> a huge compliment. Um, but I, I think a part of his, you know, his journey into keyboards, he kept it minimal. He kept it melodic. I will say to Getty's credit that he did a brilliant job of, of, of developing melodic keyboard and manageable keyboard parts that, that worked for his skills set. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. One thing I'm curious about is the different logos on the album covers. Uh, were they created as part of the artwork? I mean, was there a discussion of now we're we're want to be this type of band, so this logo is more applicable and so on? That's actually almost a misnomer. The fact that you say logo mm. um, speaks to something that we just dis- we actually discussed this very very early on with Aerosmith, a band called Chicago, which had a you know constantly reinterpreted logo uh van halen a lot of bands had logos and those logos would appear every uh, megadeth you know they would all always appear album after album mm-hmm. it became a necessary part of of their album i i i sort of challenged the band i said are you are you progressive yes are you progressive musically yeah we, we hope so um can we be progressive graphically so that when we do an a conceptual cover, do we want to overpower that cover with a really intrusive and overbearing logo that's constantly kind of the constant or the, the, you know, the brand, you know, or do we want to be bravely minimal and let the, let the art speak for itself and maybe let the name be a little bit more graphically um, simple and clean. And they, they aired towards the latter and, Again, I'm grateful that they did. I, I said, you know, there's a confidence. Look at the So album by Peter Gabriel. Look at so many albums by bands like that that didn't need to kind of hit you in the face with a logo. And early in our relationship, they they adhered to that, or at least they, they cottoned on to that that realization that they didn't have to shout at you. Yeah. So, and, and from my standpoint as a as a self-serving art director, I love the fact that. The art got to speak for itself, and the band name was was um, informative, communicative, but not necessarily intrusive. Yeah, or, or occupying a third of my cover. Right. My, and I say my cover. Yeah. <laughs> right. Fair enough. And uh, what's behind the decision to revise the art of the three Rush reissues so far? And are are the band members already also involved with these revisions? You're talking about the box sets? Yeah, the box sets. The Hemispheres, the Permanent Waves, and I think Farewell to Kings, right? And 2112. A lot of times with anything that's kind of commemorative or, or retrospective and so on, the band looks at that as kind of catalog, you know. And in the case of the box sets, it's much more important in view, you know, in, from the standpoint of the demands that, that I make of myself. It's not just the band expecting what I hope to be a good, a good end result, but every time I work with Rush, I, I sort of demand that same attention to detail from myself because we're only as good as our last effort. So when we started doing the box sets, one of the luxuries that I didn't have back in the album cover days, if you had a 
a sleeve with the back and a front or maybe a gatefold with a back front and inner spread. That's it. Mm-hmm. Your real estate was done, but now we're doing, you know, 40 page booklets, which allow me to illustrate every lyric and to refamiliarize myself with lyrics from the seventies. Some of which I, in fairness, you know, and in, in truth, I've never really delved into and really become intimate with. But when I reread those lyrics, I, I come to realize, or I, I get to harvest imagery from, from Neil's um, words, and I take note of the, the most poignant, hopefully the most poignant or pivotal lyric in a, a given song, and, and hopefully breathe life into that with imagery. So, again, it's it's indulgent, it's extravagant, and it's it's a second chance to to revisit those projects in a much more um, expanded fashion than we ever had. Um, the ability to do back in the 70s. But the band is not really involved, no. I see. And I saw an interview where you mentioned that uh, Hemispheres is a cover you'd like to redo, if possible, with today's technology. What would you change about it? I mean, and any other album cover from, from your whole catalog? Would you have a, one a second chance? Or? Everybody. Mm-hmm. And everybody, including Neil and you know, everybody else. You know, There are times that I talked to Neil and he said, yeah, I would have probably like to play that differently or I could probably play that better today. Um, we grow, you know, we develop our, our style and our, our, our skills as we do, um, as we, we, as we delve into what we do. Um, I, I liken hemispheres to you know, one of the other iconic numbers. I like to think hemispheres has staying power and impact just as the blind faith cover with the young girl and the, kind of the chromium Chevy, it looks like an airplane. I think it's a Chevy yeah. hood ornament, but it's a, it, it's a controversial cover. It's technically pretty awful, you know, the way they cut around her hair. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it was a hypnosis cover, but, you know, it was very early days. And, and the whole idea of compositing people and things from different um, elements into a final frame of reference, you know, that, that, that became very much a hypnosis phenomenon. It also is a, is a strong component of what uh, I do. I like to build improbable realities of, of disparate components and elements. But in the case of hemispheres, if you look at it from the standpoint of compositing and seamless retouching and so on, it falls far short of what I would do today. So mm-hmm. um, that's all I meant. You know, you know, technically we grow and I mean, the band has to look back at handlebar mustaches and big <laughs> billowing blouse. Kimonos. You know? and <laughs> Kimonos, you know. Yeah. So we all do things that at the time feel right, you know. So it's, there's never any regret, but there's certainly, one, one would hope, some um, evolution. <laughs> right. Makes sense. And uh, changing the subject a little bit, what was it like working with Iron Maiden? And what kind of information did they give you for the X Factor cover? No information whatsoever. They gave me a title. Oh, wow. Um, and, and a, a, yeah, I was surprised. You know, I was living in uh, the U.S. at the time, and they were in London recording. And, you know, as I developed ideas and so on, I would send them to them. And, and back then, there was no email. So I would uh, download my work in progress to what was then known as a SideQuest disc, which was like a big cumbersome disc that held a big 200 megabytes of data. <laughs> You know, mm. you know. Nowadays, we put 60 gigabytes on a on a thumb drive, yeah. or 150 gigabytes. So back then, it was like a 
seven-inch square box with a, a, a SideQuest disc, and I would send that counter to counter. It was like a $300 delivery from North America overnight to the band so they could see it in the morning. It was wow. It was kind of like FedEx, FedEx on steroids, but it got to the point where management and the band just got sick of the delay. You know, let's just do this real time. So they invited me over to London for a few weeks to work on the finish of the project. But um, Eddie had to be on the cover because Eddie was the, was there, you know, Vic Rattlehead, yeah. even though Vic, I think, Vic came long after Eddie, you know. Um, Eddie had to be on the cover. So um, I, I sculpted and painted um, a, a maquette of Eddie and created the torture table and just brought what I thought to be the X Factor um to life in the fashion that I did. The band seemed to like it, but a lot of fans didn't. A lot of fans, you know, it's like, you know, if someone were to try to come along and do a Yes cover without it being um, Roger Dean, a lot of fans would have probably been a bit possessive about that. Same with with Phil Travers from the Pink Floyd, no, the, the Moody Blues band. Phil did a lot of, a lot of them, all their covers. And gratefully, Rush fans have been kind of possessive about their art director, too. So if someone else tried to do what I do. So I forget the name of the illustrator from Ireland. I think he's from Ireland, who does Eddie. But, you know, uh, gratefully so. The- yeah. Derek Derek. Ritz. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, Derek. I never met him, but I have a big, great respect for his his um, his his chops, his, his artistic um, prowess. And even though uh, the band, I think at the time they used, you know, they used Megadeth as a point of reference because we had sort of developed Vic Rattlehead in a way that had never been done before in the illustration versions. And Megadeth was much more, uh, their fans were much more forgiving and they embraced Countdown to Extinction and the Euthanasia project more than I think Iron Maiden was um, their fans were willing to. I think, and I've heard great, great things, good compliments about that cover. But I've heard a lot of sort of outcries that it was sacrilegious. You know, it's just a, <laughs> yeah. an affrontery to Derek. Yeah, I'm, I'm an Iron Maiden fan as well. And at the time, I thought it was very strange. You know, it, it, it caused me discomfort or some concern at the time. But anyway, I, I grew to love that cover. I think it's it's so realistic. It's, it was shocking to me at the time, you know, different style. And the band was changing the style as well with a different singer, different lineup. So, yeah. but yeah, <laughs> I see what you mean. The, the shockingness, what's shocking about the cover is pretty evident. I mean, it's, it's a pretty gruesome image. But as you say, if you become accustomed to a style and you become accustomed to the illustrative style of Derek, then somebody else dares to come along and to take it into a different direction. Well, to many fans' sensibilities, that's an affrontery. That's a, that's a, a, a it's sacrilegious. You know? yeah. So, you know, yeah, I think so. I love meeting the band. I love drinking with the band. I love hanging in London. It was a great experience. They're all great guys. Yeah, and around the same time, you did the Countdown to Extinction. You did the Euthanasia, which was very controversial as well, and you did mm-hmm. the. Get a Grip from Aerosmith. Uh, I think it was the best-selling album you ever worked on, right? It's up there, yeah. Mm-hmm. What was it like to develop that cover? I mean, uh, were they as engaged, was the band as engaged as, say, Iron Maiden or Rush, for that matter? Or? Well, I had a lot of conversations with um, with Steve 
Tyler at the time, and we spoke. His original title for that album was Rag, Wings, and Heavy Iron. Okay. And that's not a, a, well, a well-known fact, but we had all kinds of ideas of doing, doing some, you know, aeronautical, you know, rivets, uh, the paneling on the side of a DC-10 or something. We, we had all kinds of ideas that played to that title, and then eventually Get a Grip was the title that I was given. And um, I went to a board meeting at Geffen Records on Sunset with John, John Kalodner and a couple of the art directors within the company. And, you know, outside art directors, are they're sort of looked at, you know, some people embrace you as, you know, as welcome, and some people will look at you as intruders. And in the case of a band of, of a stature of Aerosmith, you can be sure that the art directors within the company would really like to do the cover. Anyway, those are the moments when they really want to possess the opportunity to do a cover. And mm-hmm. in that meeting, there were two art directors and they were bringing their concepts to the table and they were all good concepts. Um, a couple of the executives said, you know, we should forget a grip. We should choke the chicken. And I thought, well, that's pretty, pretty funny, but you know, what else you got, you know, uh-huh. so in the conversation, I said, you know, the, the trend, the, the fashionable trend of piercing uh, nipples um, could be kind of funny if we did that to a cow udder. And for some reason, the room went dead silent. I thought, <laughs> well, they're going to dismiss they're going to dismiss me really quickly. And, and very quickly, they started laughing and saying, "That's the cover." And I, I knew that that at, in that moment that that was at the 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 dismay of a couple of the art directors that were in that meeting at the time, but. Right. It was around that time that I moved to Indiana after the earthquake in uh, Los Angeles. And so in Indiana, I found the cow. It's, it's a local cow in Indiana that I photographed for that cover. Oh, okay. You're, you're back to Indiana now, aren't you? I am, yeah. I was in Toronto for years. I was in L.A. I went down to L.A. in the early 80s. Bob Ezra, who produced The Wall, um, had just finished 22 months with Pink Floyd, and then he came back to Toronto and he produced, you know, a local band, like a, like a, a very good pop band called The Kings, and they had a big hit called Switch It to Glide back in the early 80s. And I remember being at Nimbus 9 on Yorkville Avenue, or Hazelton Lanes in Yorkville, and Bob played me this album by this, by the Pink Floyd band, and I remember hearing the album and going, yeah, I bet you that's going to be a successful album, because... <laughs> <laughs> It was brilliant. It just sounded so good. But he played me some of the Kings, and he said, I want you to do the cover. He shipped me down to L.A. to deliver the album to Geffen's company at the time called Asylum Records, and it was then that I got bit by the L.A. bug. Oh, and right. I was then asked to do a painting for White Snake and one for Quiet Riot. I was put up in a nice house with a convertible Mustang, and I thought, yeah, I could get used to this. <laughs> and as I prepared to go back, as I got back, prepared to go back to Toronto, they said, where are you going? I said, no, I'm going back to my studio. I said, why? You should be here. So my six weeks turned into 16 years, but the earthquake and my having an eight-month-old daughter at the time uh, shook me and my then-wife loose, and we, we, we left L.A. three weeks after the earthquake, and we already had a house in Indiana, so that's my first taste of Indiana. Uh, after my my wife and I decided to call it quits, I went up to Toronto for a few years, and and realized that you know I didn't have to be there I could work from anywhere so for the price of a driveway in Toronto I'm building a house down in Indiana yeah it's crazy at the moment I live here I live in St. Clair West oh, I, and it's it's amazing yeah oh I know I know the area St. Clair West one of my favorite 
Italian restaurants is out there. Uh, which one? Oh, God, it's right by Dufferin. It's just Pizza Pachi. Pizza Pachi? Is that it? No. There's a, there's a few no, in I, the area. <laughs> there's one in particular that I've known for years, and I can't, to my shame, I can't remember what it's called. It's all right. Um, spent a lot of time out there. Yeah, it's all right. Uh, changing the subject a little bit, uh, you were also a source of inspiration for the song Burning a Path from Deep Blue Something. Um, how did that happen to become a subject of a song? First of all, I, I I think you mentioned that to me in one of our earlier encounters, and I can honestly say I had no, <laughs> absolutely no clue that, that was the case. So okay, and I'm not even sure you're, I'm not even sure you're right. And if you are, I'd love to know more about it because um, I did the cover with them and I enjoyed working with the guys. Mm. You know, it was a, a fun project, but. Um, I can't imagine anyone wanting to make me, of all people, a subject of a song. So um, you, you'll have to expound on that maybe right. after this interview. Sure. You can send me your, your source material so I can... Yeah, I'll I do my research. Yeah. Amused, yeah. amused or shocked at, at, right. at how this came to be. Let me refine my search and I'll get back to you on that. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. So, uh, how's the interaction with Dream Theater to design their cover? Did things change when Mike Portnoy left, or no? Um, Mike was brilliant in terms of communicating, and it was it was made known to me, you know, when we in our first conversations that they grew up being big Rush fans and mm-hmm. they liked my artwork. I, I you know, I was, I was appreciative of their their interest in my work, and you know, I I, I had been aware of Dream Theater. I'd, I'd heard their music and, you know, um, and appreciated. And I knew they were Berkeley graduates. And I knew that on many levels, they were technically better players than the boys in Rush. Mm-hmm. Um, the last album where they all went and woodshedded the writing process and the recording on distant, um, distance over time, that album is organic. It's melodically their most engaging I've ever heard. And it was the most emotionally honest album I've heard in a long time. So I think that's a testament to the fact that even though we all have families and wives and lives and we can't all just go and hang out as musicians, it served them well to do that and to, to go into, to woodshed the album, go to a, you know, a rural place, you know, much like Rush when they went up to Moran Heights, it, it made a big deal of difference. Now, a lot of times, you know, Rush will, work in Toronto on the guitar and the bass and Neil will think about drums. They'll come together and they'll kind of, they will bring the parts together sort of later in the process, as opposed to letting it develop organically. Mm -hmm. I think, I think the results become evident um, in both instances. Anyways, Mike was brilliant to work with, great guy. And when he left, um, Somebody stepped up, and that somebody was John, John Petrucci, and well-spoken, very clear on what he likes and doesn't like. Um, but neither of them were dogmatic or or imposed any kind of preconceptions. They just, they just, as much as I was grateful for them as musicians and clients, they seemed equally grateful to have me working on their project. So um, that freedom is is pretty heady stuff. You get to, you know, and, and yet you don't abuse that. You, you, you take that, that, um, gift and you work with it. And I, I try to bring just like with rush, I try to bring my best. And, you know, we all, as, as 
professionals, we, we do two things. We try to please the client, but as artists, we also have to please ourselves. If sure. we don't grow and if we don't, if we don't look at what we do with any degree of uh, respect, um, responsibility, and hopefully, you know, hopefully on some level excellence, then we failed. Yeah. And when you say art director, uh, it's it's more than just doing the album cover, right? But when it comes to Dream Theater and Rush, for example, are you also involved in the stage props or the imagery live that make reference to the album covers or not really? Not, not, not wittingly and not intentionally, but in both cases, if you go to a Rush concert and you go to a, a Dream Theater concert, my artwork is everywhere. It's just, yeah. It's the... It's the ground. It's the groundwork for all the imagery on the rear screen projection and on the merchandising and so on. So it becomes, it becomes the tail that wags the dog. You know, mm -hmm. it, it's, it, it, that's gratifying. But do I get physically involved? Not really. No, I gave Neil some ideas on his his elaborate drum set for Clockwork Angels. Um, had nothing to do with either of Getty's rig or Alex's rig, but. Um, we knew going in it was going to be pretty steampunk. Right, right. I'm asking because, for example, right now on the stage, uh, James has that microphone stand, which is, you know, sort of a replica of your your album cover. You know, it's, it's the digital hand yeah. holding the skull. So. Yeah, and I and I only saw that as I became, as I started doing the the tour book for the boys. You know, they 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 had to do some rehearsal and they had to do the first few gigs to get the photography necessary, you know, the live photography necessary for the mm -hmm. tour book. When it started sending that to me, I, I immediately saw how my cyborgs and my, and my, you know, cyborg hand and skull became, you know, the, the nucleus for, for, for their, their artwork. Yeah. Um, and, and to, you know, for them to do a sculptural mic stand was pretty hip. You know, I saw it, I was, I was amused. Yeah, it's pretty cool, yeah. And, uh, well, Dream Theater, much like Rush, uh, has very passionate fans, and some of the fans have become quite critical about the execution of your work. Like the Octavarium cover, for example, with uh, the strings and balls not lining up, uh, self-titled cover, <laughs> which was uh, it was fixed before the album was released. How do you feel about that? Well, I, I, don't, I almost don't care. Um, when someone takes the time to... and, and You know, God bless the guy that says the string doesn't quite match up <laughs> to the trajectory of that, that one ball on the Newton's cradle. When I read that or I heard somebody brought that to my attention, I thought, well, he's not wrong. Mm -hmm. But you know, d does that mean he's he's brilliant or bored? Um, <laughs> a little bit of both, I would say. <laughs> well, I would think more, I would think more of the latter. There's a, yeah. of, there's a lot of, you know especially with social media. I mean, Dennis Miller said it beautifully. He said, never have lives less lived than so chronicled. Mm -hmm. You know, never, never has there been so much platform for, for opinion and know-it-alls and, and some, some fools and some, some insightful as well. But in those instances, I, I you know, I, I take it with a grain of salt, you know, right. I'm not offended. And like I say, I openly admit to the fact that I fucked up. That the string <laughs> doesn't quite line up. But but do I care? No, because I think the cover still stands on its own merit. It does. It's one of the coolest ones of Dream Theater, for sure. 
for sure. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, I'm curious, where can people find uh, and buy prints of your work with Rush, DT, and others? Is there a, uh, an online store that can people that people can refer to, or? Yeah, I, I wish I had it right in front of me, um, especially for the interview. But <laughs> we just launched the. You could Google it, but we just launched the Art of Rush Gallery dot com as a as a as a response to the book that I put out, um, which features my 40 some years with the band mm-hmm. and, and having created the imagery, I've had lots of private people, you know, approach me through email saying, do you have, do you have prints and so on? So I'm currently doing, I just came from the gallery today. We're doing a, a gallery show in the U S for the art of rush and also featuring a lot of my own private work. A lot of people aren't aware of the fact that as an artist, I don't just stop, when an album is finished, I don't stop being creative. I've spent my whole career creating art for my own sake and for my own sanity. You know, mm-hmm. um, I enjoy the process. I enjoy creating. So, um, and I'm going to do a show at the list gallery, the, Bri- the Brian list gallery in Yorkville in 2020. We'll be doing a, a show up there. And he has sister galleries in Vancouver, Kelowna, and I believe one in New York. So, and maybe even some displays in the distillery of my artwork. We're working on that right now. Oh, okay. Distillery um, district, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Awesome, um, awesome. But it would it'd be artwork displayed externally. It would be on the outside of the it, – it wouldn't be in galleries. It would be on the walls of the distillery. So, okay. Um, I, talked, I talked to one of the general managers down there about mm. possibly doing this. It's still to be, you know, to be locked down as right. a – as a done a done deal, but yeah, that should be fun. Um, but uh, I should get you the um, the URL for the Art of Rush. You know what? I'm going to take a minute here while sure. we're talking. Sure, you know, go ahead. Keep keep asking the questions. But I, I'm going to I'm going to read this off to you because we're we're live and we're talking, so I can't just kind of send it with an email. No, that's um, okay. That's okay. Take your time if you want to search for it. Yeah. We launched the we we launched the um, the uh, the site and it does it does provide my artwork as um, as framed limited edition signed and numbered uh, prints of my art for Rush. It's called Art of Rush. Dot Shop. Dot Music Today. Dot Com Slash Store. So that's that's where you can. Um, go and review art and and see the difference and, and it's sort of offered in different sizes because not everybody has you know especially in toronto where we were discussing earlier you know real estate so expensive so not everybody has huge walls yeah they have to be a bit more mindful of their their footprint exactly yeah so this uh this discussion you're having with the distillery district, is that going to be like a permanent installation or just a temporary exhibition? No, no, no. It's conceptual now, but last summer, a really interesting photographer whose name escapes me, I forget her name, but they featured her artwork on the exterior walls of the distillery for the summer. And it was actually applied as an interesting concept um, developed by the Toronto Image Works people in Toronto, Eric, um, who was also responsible for printing a lot of my artwork um he explained the process but they could not because it's a historic site they could not drill into or mount anything to the walls so what they did is they developed a way of 
of applying the artwork right to the brick. So even though the texture and the the you know the, the relief of the brick um, interrupted the 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 clean lines of the artwork, it, it allowed. And we're talking about artwork at sort of six eight feet or you know ten by nine. It's just really large format. Um, so I'm hoping, you know, it's, like I said, this is for this interview, it's probably premature to be referring to it, but the, it's in discussion that maybe my artwork will be um, a contender for for that site to be, to be determined, you know? Uh, okay, fair enough. But that would be amazing to see, man. Amazing. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I hope it happens. <laughs> Well, yeah. I do too. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I reached out the other day. I mean, we talked. About, I met a few times with the people, and there was interest. And and I think if I, you know, if I, if I do it in tandem with the Brian, this is an interesting gallery too because um, he's very music centric. He he shows the artwork of you know, little known people who spend their spare time painting. You know. You probably don't know any of these, but like Paul McCartney or or Ronnie Wood from the Stones, Bob Dylan, Mick Fleetwood, Sylvester Stallone. You know, all these people who paint right. end up showing their artwork in Toronto at that gallery. So I met with Brian, and he, I was delighted that he responded so well to my work. So, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, and and you know, when he saw my work, he said, you know, this is great. Um, the rush works great. It'll probably be an interesting draw in terms of bringing people into the gallery. But what I enjoyed about his reaction to my work was that he liked it specifically. He liked my work. So, and not, not everybody's aware of my work beyond what is published. You know, the record industry makes my work infamous because my clients are famous, you know, <laughs> but right. Right. I, I'm aware of that infamy being accidental. I don't, I don't subscribe to it, but it is it is what it is. But it hasn't it hasn't hurt my career to to have that. But when Brian said, "Yeah, Rush will be an interesting draw," but I really want to feature your work, so I thought, "Oh, that's a nice that's that's a gratifying comment from someone who spends his life in the gallery world." Yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, Hugh, uh, those were the end of my questions, man. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, man. Good evening. Okay, thank you so much, Hugh. And all the best, man. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, everyone. Thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoy all of Hugh's insights on so many memorable album covers. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. We're going to leave you now with Rush's signature song, Tom Sawyer. Take care and prog on.
Take your time.